Well, again, it's good to be back with you guys, and we're going to continue on. We barely got started. We did one little sort of semi-introductory session on uh, our study of church history. And just to kind of refresh, um, remind everyone of, of how we're approaching this, uh, this is in no way kind of a highly intensively academic approach to church history. Um, I mean, there'll be elements, obviously, where it's, it might have some kind of an academic tone to it. But really, um, I want to try to approach this from the standpoint of the flow of God's redemptive work uh, as, it, as we move through both the New Testament as well as beyond the New Testament, and to really see how uh, God has been faithfully building His church um, through these last couple of centuries, how He has been faithfully uh, calling men and women to Himself. He's been faithfully using His people, and that He's been faithfully sustaining the work of the kingdom of God um, without, without fail. Even in the midst of compromise, even in the midst of persecution and trial, even in the midst of the failures of men and women, um, that God's faithfulness has been the sustaining constant factor. And really, the, the uh, affirmation and, and upholding of His own promise that we actually looked at in our introductory study in Matthew chapter 16, when He said, I will build my church. He made that commitment. He, he made that promise that He would build His church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so, just by way of reminder, we did kind of use Matthew chapter 16 as a, as a point of introduction to a study of church history, really just to take something from the gospel account that, that highlights some things about church history that we'll find in our study of church history that have been part and parcel to life in God's redemptive plan and His work among men um, even back in the time of Christ and, and even back with the children of Israel, and it continues on. Um, but just point out some of those things and remind you of some of those things. Um, when you look, for example, at, um, at Matthew chapter 16, and even when you think about the study of church history and how we want to approach it, um, the first thing that we talked about was how the history of the church is fundamentally interpersonal. It's not, in other words, we don't want to take a, a look at, at the history of, of the church and, and look at it from some sort of stale, detached perspective that this is, you know, this look at these distant events or these ancient people or, or things that happen, times and dates and places. But really what we're talking about is we're talking about the relationships that people have among one another. We're talking about interpersonal relationships, interpersonal conflict. We're talking about people's beliefs and their statements about their beliefs. And we're talking about people's accomplishments and their failures and um, the testimony that that provides for us and the guidance that provides for us. And when you look at Matthew chapter 16, you see this interpersonal dialogue taking place between Jesus and his opponents, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and between his closest companions, the disciples. Um, You just see this constant interaction, this interpersonal interaction in that chapter. And, And really, when you look at church history... Um, that's what really it's about. It's about the interpersonal um, interactions of people as they're working out their salvation or as they're seeking to work out their own agendas in the name of Christ and the conflicts that that, that, that brings about. But it is very, very much an inter- interpersonal exercise. Uh, we also uh, identified or looked at uh, from Matthew chapter 16 that... that uh, the history of the church is a story of relentless opposition to the truth. And that's what you see in Matthew chapter 16, and that's what you see all throughout church history. You see it in the book of Acts, as we are going to begin to look at today, um, that, that history is replete with periods and times and people who are in opposition to the truth of God's Word and to the truth of who Christ is. And, and it's opposition that comes from hostile enemies. It's opposition that comes from weak faith of true believers. It's opposition that comes from Satan himself. And you see that played out in Matthew chapter 16, and that's what you see all throughout, that, throughout church history. And really that's what we see as we think about our own lives, right? We're constantly dealing with opposition to the truth, whether it be opposition from outside opponents, whether it be opposition from our own weakness of faith, and we're, 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 we're basically in our flesh opposing what we know to be true either in our thinking or in our actions, or the opposition of, against the truth that is being ultimately um, 
coming coming against the truth by Satan himself and all of his strategy and and his demonic hosts and all that he's doing. Doctrines of demons and that kind of thing that you see articulated in Scripture is a very real thing. We also notice that the history of the church is the history of Christ's church and his certain unfailing building of it through the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're not talking about, and we don't want to have our approach to this to be focused on some kind of institutional study. Uh, We don't want to be overly... Uh, focused on the machinations of church polity and and the way churches functioned. Um, We want to be focused on what Christ is doing to build his church, and and the certainty of that is it's continually displayed, even through very, very dark times, how it's an unfailing work and how it's a work that really is affected and empowered and made possible by the work of the Spirit himself. Uh, We also identified the fact that the study of church history is always and inextricably linked to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that church history is about the life and work of Christ. And again, this kind of dovetails with some of the other things we've said, but we don't want to have our look at church history or our understanding of church history to be detached from the work of Christ. If we find ourselves too focused on the works of men as the end of, in and of itself, then, when, then our focus is really off. It's really about the work of Christ and really focused in that seminal historical event of Christ's life and death and resurrection. Well, to kind of move us forward <clears throat> and really get into um, the beginnings of our study of church history, I want to kind of do some survey work in the book of Acts, and we're going to do this over a number of weeks. Um, again, this is another one of those situations where you're coming to the text of Scripture, and it's going, to be, it's going to be observational in nature as opposed to taking a verse-by-verse approach or really dealing with all that you could possibly deal with in any given chapter. Again, we're trying to move ourselves through uh, church history in a survey fashion. So this is going to be another sort of survey approach, and, uh, and we're going to start with kind of a look at, uh, at the book of Acts. Now, just to refresh our memories, when we think about studying church history, it could be, I mean, some of you may be here and you're, you're just interested, you're fascinated, you're, maybe you're, you're intrigued by history as a general subject matter, um, or maybe church history is one of those areas where you have a certain interest or inclination to learn more. Um, maybe you just feel a sense of, of lack of knowledge in, a certain, in this area, and so you're interested in being here. But the fact of the matter is, is that really, we, we, church history is our history. Like, we're a part of the ongoing history of the church. And so we're kind of in this line or in this stream of what God is doing in his plan and purpose until he returns and until he restores all things uh, in, in the future. And so, so for us to understand kind of our, even our place properly in the history of the church, and to be faithful in the passing on of this precious faith to future generations, we have to have some rooting and some grounding in our own history. And so part and parcel to us really engaging in this study, it's really a study of our own heritage, our own sort of spiritual heritage. And the fact of the matter is, and there's been a number of quotes that I read about this that I thought were very compelling, but to the extent that any, in, any individual believer or any groups of believers or any, uh, those who, who, who gather as, as Christians in any period of time, to the extent that they become detached from sort of their historical moorings and their historical roots, is, it's often, if not invariably, associated with a greater and greater detachment from the sound doctrine that has been passed along from generation to generation. And you see that happening even in our day and time where there is this grabbing hold of what Jesus did to forgive sins. And then from there, it's pretty much detached and everything about what we do, who we are as a church, how we function, what our role is, what our mission is, how we carry about that mission is all innovative. It's all new. It's all characterized by the latest you know, ideas or notions about what, what missions should look like or what evangelism should be about or what worship is and those kinds of things and really that that is there's nothing wrong with being um, current and looking for ways to to connect effectively with with modern thinking and, and current you know your current environment that's certainly prudent 
but to have it be detached from our historical roots as the people of God who have a historic faith, uh, invariably what that leads to are compromises in actual fundamental or essential doctrines um, that, that make up what it means to be a part of God's work in and through the church. So this is a really important um, factor, not just in terms of me trying to make a case for the viability of a study like this, but really an important principle for us as God's people to recognize that we are not some newfangled enterprise here. That we didn't just come along and you know, become aware of something that happened a couple thousand years ago that has impact for us, and now that we've got hold of that, now we kind of go on our way and kind of make it all work for us in the modern day. That's not what it means to be a part of God's family and be a part of the church. It's a historic faith. So, as I said, we're going to start by doing a little bit of, just a little bit of survey work um, in Acts to kind of get the pump primed. Um, but the first thing we'll just kind of talk about is, is the writer of Acts, and that's Luke, and to just kind of give us a sense of this, because this really does bolster um, the, the, the idea of studying church history. Um, as you probably know, Acts is part two of Luke's two-volume set, Right? Acts is, is the second part. You have the Gospel of Luke, his Gospel account. And then you have Acts, which is basically volume two of his history of the works of Christ um, and, and the works of uh, the Holy Spirit and through the apostles in the founding of the church. So you have this, this account of Acts, which is really just part two of this ongoing work of Luke. In fact, um, um, R.C. Sproul likes to call this um, either the history of Christ in the apostolic age, as Luke acts together, it's just one sort of big, you know, work. Um, or he also has uh, has referred to it as the history of the acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, acts in particular. When you think about um, Luke's work, um, just by sheer volume of his work, it is comprehensive. It's massive in nature. Fifty-two total chapters of writing, and his writings comprise of one-third of the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever thought of Luke in that way. Of course, we think of the Apostle Paul as, you know, this big contributor to the New Testament writings. The Apostle Paul contributed about one-third to the New Testament. Luke contributed one-third to the New Testament. So the totality of the New Testament, two-thirds of it is comprised of Luke and Paul. But a massive amount of content is contributed and provided for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by Luke. And, uh, and, a, and a, an important piece of that that we're going to look at, as I said, is, is found in Acts. Um, <clears throat> Luke presents a robust defense of, one, in one main area, a robust defense of Paul's apostolic office and authority. Um, you, you, see, you see that playing out as an important fa- uh, factor in church history because why would it be important, do you think, for Luke to make a really strong case to defend the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul? Just give you a tr- he wasn't one of the twelve. That's right. That's right. He wasn't one of the original twelve. So there, there's in, on three different occasions in Acts, for example, he talks about the the calling of Paul on the road to Damascus, for example. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the importance of that from the context of church history. But, but one characteristic of Luke's writing is to make sure that, that the readers understand uh, apostolic authority and office and the importance of that, that leadership function in the, in the founding and, um, and initial work of the church and form, formulating its, its core doctrines, its core uh, ecclesiology and so forth. Um, The other thing, too, about that, just as a side note, is he wasn't one of the original 12, but he was also, his, what was his primary calling in ministry? The apostle to the Gentiles, right? So if you think about the, time, the day and time uh, that the, 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 the church was being founded, if you will, um, for the Gentiles to take part in this was a big, big deal for the Jewish people. This was something that was going to have to be sort of overcome, if you will, and, and, and for people to understand it. And so him having sort of this enormous and very meticulous record 
being authored by Luke to kind of support his authority of, of being called by Christ himself, being a true apostle, and his actual calling by Christ himself being that of an apostle to the Gentiles. It's hugely important when you think about that in the context of the history of the New Testament church. Um, when you think about Luke and you think about his writing, both Luke and Acts, um, his, his, for example, his use of the Greek language is extraordinary. It, it's of a high, high caliber, if you will, um, high literary precision. In fact, the prologue of Luke, which we're going to look at in just a moment, but the prologue of Luke itself is written in a classic literary style. Um, it, it's, it's, it's to set this work apart as, as, a, as a, a, a work of distinguished historical uh, narrative. It, it just the very nature of the, the language and his use of the language itself does that. Um, John MacArthur says about even the prologue and his use of the language, he says, any philosopher, any theologian, any educator, any historian in the ancient world who was of high quality, who wanted his volume to stand on the shelf with the classics, would start his writing with such a prologue. These four verses, in fact, are one long unbroken sentence, one sentence written in Greek originally and written in the polished style of Greek that is known as literary classic Greek. So when you come to the, the Gospel of Luke, but also, like for our purposes, the book of Acts, you're dealing with a very uh, classic, classically styled um, work of history. This is not just... A, from, the, from our standpoint, a book in, in our New Testament for us to study and to take our, our, our cues from in terms of how we're to function as the church and, and that kind of thing. We're talking about Luke's purpose and the way that Luke wrote this was for it to stand up as a work of authoritative history. Um, in fact, Luke, his writings are among the most highly scrutinized most vigorously tested um, of all historical writers in antiquity. When you think of names like ha- uh, Tacitus or Herodotus or Suetonius or Josephus, Luke's work has been scrutinized above and beyond even these works, these writers of history. Um, and his work has stood up to those tests for its precision and its accuracy, and its description of people, dates, places, and, and so forth. Um, in fact, you could say, and R.C. Sproul actually said this, um, he said that from a secular perspective, Luke has been esteemed as the most accurate historian of the ancient world. So, of course, we uh, have a, a, adopt a position of the authority and inspiration of Scripture. We see the works of Luke in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as inspired by the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's authoritative because it's the Word of God, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that even if you stand outside of that understanding of inspiration and authority and inerrancy of Scripture, and you just take Luke's work as a historical piece, um, it stands up to the most um, extreme degrees of scrutiny for historical veracity and accuracy. So it's a very historical work. Um, One of the most well-known archaeologists of all time was Sir William Ramsey. He studied under the German uh, historical schools in the mid-19th century, um, very skeptical, uh, very critical of of, um, Christian thought and writing and the authority of Scripture. It taught that the New Testament uh, was a religious treatise written in the mid-200s, so this school of thought dated the writings of the New Testament well beyond the times of the actual events themselves and said that it's not a historical document recorded in the first century. So Ramsey, under that school of thought, was very influenced by that way of thinking. He was so convinced of this that he entered the field of archaeology. He went to Asia Minor, and his intent was to find physical evidence to refute Luke's biblical record. I mean, he he actually entered into an endeavor of study, an archaeological enterprise, to refute the veracity of Luke's biblical record. And it turned, it basically backfired on him in a big-time way. After years of, uh, in the field of study, Ramsey completed, he completely reversed his entire view of the Bible 
and first century history. He wrote this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. So I I say all of that to kind of help us understand that what we have in our hands is not just you know, devotional material for us to be inspired by or to be you know, convicted personally by. We're talking about this is part of the history of the church that's been inspired by the Spirit for sure, but it's been crafted in such a way that it stands up to tests of historical veracity. In other words, it's accurate and it's precise in its descriptions. Um, when you look at the prologue, this kind of gives you a, a real good indication. When you look at the prologue of Luke, for example, if you want to turn there, you can, Luke chapter 1, you can see that this is, this is what Luke is about. This is what Luke is after. He, he wants to provide an account, a historically accurate account. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke's objective is to produce an orderly account of things. And he gives you an indication of the kind of research, excruciating detail that was pursued. Eyewitnesses, those that saw the events, that witnessed the events, that could recount the events with clarity. And and he wanted to provide this information in an orderly fashion. And really the ultimate objective was to provide certainty of these things, to provide confidence that these events happened, and they happened in this way and in this order and at this time and with these people. And so his objective was to produce something of historical accomplishment, historical um, weight. You look at the prologue of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So, part one, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Again, this reference to apostolic authority and the importance of it. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So again, the prologue of Acts is another indication of Luke's intent. This is about providing many proofs. This is about continuing to tell the story in factual, precise detail. That's what the book of Acts is. It's a continuation of his work from the Gospel of Luke. In fact, you look at the end of Luke and it ends with the Ascension. You look at the first of the uh, book of Acts and it begins kind of elaborating more on the Ascension and carrying on from there. So what you have in the book of Acts is really the first 30 years of the church's history. That's what you have. The first 30 years of the history of this New Testament church. So again, what we're going to do is we're going to do some... Real, real sort of general survey work here. Um, certainly we'll be moving back and forth throughout the book of Acts, but I'm going to kind of work through it uh, in a chapter-by-chapter basis over the course of the next several weeks to kind of, in a survey way, kind of get our minds around the flow of the narrative as these events unfold and, and serve up the, the initial 30-year block of time of the church's history. Um, so we're not going to dive too deeply uh, too often. And there's certainly a lot that, that could be said that won't be said, um, a lot that maybe should be said that I might not be able to touch on or might not have focused on. So um, just try to understand the nature of, of, of the study that we're trying to kind of engage in here. Um, but we're going to just kind of, do, like I said, do kind of a survey work, and we're going to make some observations. And my initial intent today is to kind of 
draw out, again, similar to what I did with the Matthew chapter 16 passage, draw out some observations, both that are tied to what's being communicated in the text of Scripture, the importance of, of what's being stated there, but also how that is reflective of something that we see happening in church history over and over and over again. When you think about studying history and you attach it to personal devotion, personal growth, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, having your mind renewed and having being transformed by the renewing of your mind and the work of God's word in our hearts and our lives. When you think about the pursuit of wisdom and how wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors, and we think about uh, the practical implications of wisdom and how oftentimes we seek wisdom from those who are older and more experienced than us. It's easy to see how studying church history is, dovetails nicely with a study of Proverbs or a pursuit of wisdom. And what we want to do is we want to look at the, these accounts, these events, these, these questions that get raised and recognize that wisdom is gained by not repeating some of the same mistakes, by not allowing our faith to falter at certain critical points, with the recognition that we must always take heed lest we fall because men and women over and over and over and over again have fallen at this one point. We might want to pay attention to it, is the idea. So when we're going through this and we're talking about these various times and and periods and moments and events and controversies in church history, uh, we want to make sure that we're recognizing that this is helpful for us to grow in wisdom and to learn from this multitude of counselors, even though they're counselors from the past who are no longer with us. So when you look at Acts, and you start off thinking about this as, a, as the first 30, year, 30 years of the church's history, you have Acts chapter 1, which basically is focused on the church being commissioned, um, among other things, but it's about the commissioning of the church, And then you move into Acts chapter 2, and it's about the church really being empowered to fulfill what it's commissioned to do. Acts chapter 1, why don't you turn there, and let's start by just kind of reading through verses 4 to 11. We've already read the the first few verses there um, in the prologue, but let's start with verse 4, and we'll pick it up and go down through verse 11 as a starting point. This idea of the church being commissioned. Verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So let's just start kind of working our way through this section and drawing out some, I think, what are some important observations, particularly in thinking about the study of the history of the church. The first thing I would point your attention to, it's really uh, centered there in verses 4 and 5, but to understand that Christ's church is always and only built through the empowering enablement of the Holy Spirit and by no other fundamental means. This is a crucial point. It's a crucial spiritual principle for us to understand, but it's also an important historical fact for us to to recognize and to take note of as we continue on in our study of the history of the church. It says there in verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem. Why? Like, he was emphatic, saying, don't leave Jerusalem. You're not ready. It's not time. Go and wait in Jerusalem. Why? Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said to you. You heard from me, and on he goes, and talks about the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Highlighting or emphasizing this point, that Christ's church is always and only built 
through the empowering enablement of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a caution for us in that, and it's a caution for them. What are we always inclined to do but to get out ahead of the actual work or provision or guidance and direction of the Lord himself? We are constantly oriented, both now and in times past, to want to do things in our own power. And we become very impatient, and they easily impatient here. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, obviously, it's, it's hard for us to imagine what it must have been like to be in their situation. The events that they had witnessed and experienced and the, and the ministry and work of Christ and all the teaching that he had brought to them and the, the, the messianic implications and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God and all these weighty, weighty things. And then you have the death and, and the, the, the disappointment and discouragement that that brought. And then you have the resurrection and the restoration of hope and now they're like, what now? What do we do now? I mean, can you imagine the anticipation? Can you imagine like the, the, the difficulty with remaining patient? And yet, here's what Jesus himself said after his resurrection, right before his ascension. Guess what? You get to hurry up and wait. But it's not for no reason. The reason is that there's a promised one coming that I've already told you about. And really, by implication, you're not ready to do anything that's next for you without this, apart from this. Because Christ's church has always been and will always be built through the empowering enablement of the Holy Spirit. Well, the second thing I would draw your attention to here is that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a sovereign work of God in his redemptive plan, not an incidental response to any man's requests or pleadings for a special blessing of power. In other words, what what Luke is setting before us here and what we'll see in more vivid detail in Acts chapter 2 is the sovereign work of God in bringing the Holy Spirit. It's it's, It's one of these major seminal events like the birth of Christ like the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Spirit. It's, it's one of these seminal events in God, in the flow of God's redemptive history, His redemptive work, I should say, in history. And, and you can think about how this principle has been adulterated throughout history and even today in totally minimizing and diminishing the transcendent redemptive plan significance and the historical significance of the coming of the Holy Spirit, just the nature of that event itself. And so this particular verse, in just a very small way by inference, is, is highlighting the fact that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some thing that happens incidentally that we can say, I need more power for this, or I need, you know, to, I need my victory over that. That's not what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit, is about here in Acts at all. It's a historically significant, seminal moment of empowering the church to fulfill what it had been commissioned to do. And we're going to look at that, obviously, in, in more detail as we kind of move forward. We'll, see, we'll, we'll support that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm making a statement here as an introductory statement, but we'll look at that in a little more detail as we go forward. But the fact of the matter is, is that the nature and extent of the Holy Spirit's work is a contentious matter in the history of the church. So, again, you see right here in the very opening verses of Acts chapter 1, you see almost like a foreshadowing, this is probably going to be a problem. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm looking in hindsight. I'm, I'm able to look you know, back at this and say, it's been a problem. But you just, you just, we need to recognize that the nature and extent of the Holy Spirit's work is one of those areas where it's been a contentious matter, is a contentious matter, misunderstood um, matter, and we're going to need to have both a good sense of history as well as doctrine and an understanding of Scripture to be able to, to rightly understand the nature and work of the Holy Spirit and not, not abuse that in really what I think amounts to trivial ways, really trivial, trivializing the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So we want to be cautioned by this a little bit. The next thing I would kind of draw your attention to from this, these opening verses in Acts is that the church was birthed, has grown, and is sustained by the authority, will, and blessing of the one triune God. 
the one triune God. There in verses 4 and 5, you have Jesus talking to them about what they need to do, go and wait, because a blessing, a promise from the Father, which is the Spirit, is coming. Now, what do you have right there by inference? But the triune God on display, right? It's kind of a similar situation to have, for example, in the creation account. But you have it here in vivid detail. You have the incarnate Christ resurrected now, about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, speaking to them about the Father and His promise to bring the Spirit. So you have this reference to the triune God, or the doctrine of the Trinity, really, is another way to, to say you have a reference to this, this issue of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, what we need to recognize, or one observation I would call our attention to, is that controversies about the doctrine of the Trinity are prominent in church history. Really, it's, it's beyond that. It's about the nature of God himself, the nature of the Godhead. But uh, Trinitarian doctrine has been a, a point of, of great contention throughout church history. And so the fact that you have, in these opening verses, at the very dawn of the New Testament church's history, you have this reference to the Godhead in this way. It's important. Uh, English historian Charles Abbey says this, During the first four centuries, the nature of the Godhead and the relation of the three persons of the Trinity to each other were directly or indirectly the, cause, the causes of almost all the divisions which rent the church. So this is going to be a big, big, big you know, part of, of, uh, of understanding some of the, the things that have been problematic throughout church history. Again, it ties back to understanding the truth of Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrines that, that are laid out in Scripture, and, and believing them by faith, and not, not spreading out the meaning beyond where it should be intended to be, and not reinterpreting to fit our own current climate, our own individual preferences or needs. All these things become problematic uh, uh, throughout church history. So the doctrine of the Trinity is going to be prominent and important. Next thing I'd kind of draw your attention to, again, just moving through these verses, the nature and extent of the kingdom of God and the nature of the church's mission in building the kingdom of God has always been a point of contention and controversy throughout the history of the church. The nature of the kingdom and the nature of building that kingdom. What does it mean for us to fulfill the Great Commission and how do we do it? To what extent do we do it? How... how how tangible is the kingdom of God on earth? How do we, what are we supposed to do? What links are we supposed to go to to ensure it's being fulfilled, it's being built? That kind of thing. But if you look here in uh, verses 6 through 8, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Still, there is a desire Again, I don't, I don't want to read too much into um, the motive behind this question, but it certainly was on full display in the Gospels, where there was a misunderstanding about the kingdom of God and, and the implications of that kingdom, and really what was probably most prominently at work was the desire on the part of those who were interested in the kingdom of God and its restoration was that they wanted to be a part of it, on earth, now, that they were, there was, a, there was a, a desire for them to be free of, for example, the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so the promised hope of the return of the king and the restoration of the kingdom of God, that makes us, we're on now on the winning team. We are tired of being on the losing team. Now we'll be on the winning team and King Jesus is going to establish his kingdom and are you going to restore it now? Can we go ahead and get on with this kind of thing? Now, it may have been just a point of, okay, we've had these events take place and we're, you know, there's this anticipation, still some confusion, uncertainty. It may have been a, a legitimate, sincere question of, is it, is it now or no? It may have been very genuine in that way, but it's not, I think, unreasonable to think that there could have been some of that, that hope for, is the kingdom now going to be something that's tangible for us here and now in a way that makes me a part of something material that, that I benefit from? You see what I'm saying? It's almost like a self, 
self-centered, self-gratifying kind of interest in the kingdom of God. A misunderstanding at best, uh, at minimum, I should say, about the nature of the kingdom of God. But really also about um, the extent of that kingdom and, and how, how the church is to fulfill its mission in being witnesses or, or, or being those who expand or build the kingdom of God. And all throughout church history, you've had this, even today, you've had this misunderstanding of that mission and it's the application of it become extremely problematic and that's putting it mildly in certain seasons of history. Um, you can even look in our own day and time and how easy it is for Christians to merge public policy and political movements with elements of Christian virtue or Christian faith and become more exercised and motivated by a conservative political agenda that affects public policy or that affects the election of you know, leaders in, in governmental offices than they are about the actual Great Commission itself. And, and, and there's been periods of time where, where the church has become actually more uh, uh, adamant about that movement and even, even taken over governments and, and seen in, you know, killing people who don't you know, yield. And there's just been all, we'll, we'll look at all that. But my point is, is that it really, if you get behind all of that, it's a, it's a real misunderstanding at best, about the nature of the kingdom of God and what our place and part is in helping to build that kingdom and to what extent does that go here and now versus at some future point. So there are issues of eschatology and future, future uh, events kind of involved, wrapped up in this as well. But it's always a point of, always been a point of controversy and contention and remains so to this day. And we'll kind of unpack some of that as we, as we go forward. Well, I want to draw your attention down further. We're going to kind of summarize this, uh, not get too in-depth into it. But um, one thing you see here in chapter 1, at the very end, you see the importance of God-ordained faithful leaders has always been a hallmark of the church. Um, At the very end in verses 12 to 26, where there's this choosing of Matthias to replace Judas, Uh, there's this priority placed on, on replacing Judas and fulfilling or uh, filling that, that vacant role and so there'd be 12 disciples and representing the 12 tribes of Judah, if you will, and in and, and, and that idea of, of um, Jewish understanding. And, and so they go through this process. You look at, down in verse 21. So one of the men uh, who have accompanied us during, this is Peter speaking, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So it's got to be someone who's been there and done that, who's been with us, who understands, who's, who's been a, a faithful disciple, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there were certain qualifications that they were kind of laying out here, that we're not just going to replace this leadership role with someone who we think would have great leadership skills. Um, someone who's a, a great speaker or, you know, a great networker or good with people or whatever. I mean, there were certain tangible and even historic qualifications that were being laid out here. This is, the, this is the kind of man that we need to choose. And so they identified, they put two men forward, Joseph called Barsabbas, and, uh, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed and they entrusted this to the Lord and they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So the importance and significance of faithful leaders has always been a hallmark of the church. And so as we go through our study of church history, and as we even think about this in our modern day and time, you, you, you can't help but recognize and be moved by the, the, this principle that, that faithful leadership, it's not just, it's not just effective leadership, it's, it's faithful leadership, it's rooted and grounded leadership. It's, it's people who are, who are characterized by tangible, objective qualifications for leadership is a hallmark of Christ and his church and, and the building of his church. And in fact, to the extent that that gets diminished, those qualifications become less significant or less important to where 
people rise to positions of leadership and influence because they have skills that are that produce a certain degree of influence, but they're not connected by heart and mind and conviction to the historic faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they get elevated to positions of leadership in the church and literally all hell can break loose. And that's what you see all throughout church history. The importance of, of these kinds of faithful leaders, it's always been a hallmark of the church and to the extent that it, that, that becomes diminished in its importance or its priority, you have problems, you have controversy, you have doctrinal compromise, you have a, a physical, even violent conflict that ensues. You have deeds that are done in the name of Christ and in the name of the church of Christ that are abominable, that occur, that take place. And the fact of the matter is, is that I think I mentioned this <clears throat> Excuse me, when we had our first session uh, a few weeks ago. It's very important that as we look at history, we study history of any kind, but in particular history of the church, that we recognize that we are studying it through the lens of our own experience, right? We're studying it through the lens of our own sort of modern day understanding of things. Um, We have to be very careful uh, not to uh, be too quick to... um, to look at these different events and things that have taken place throughout church, church history, especially the ones that are more um, obviously sort of detrimental to the actual work and life and ministry of Christ himself through the Spirit. Um, it's, it's, it's important for us to not look and begin to evaluate those things uh, from the standpoint of pride or aggressive condemnation, but rather of helpful and humble reflection. As I said at the very outset, we let me make sure I can say this carefully. Faith Community Church, where you're sitting right now, the church that we are assembled and gathered and a part of and investing our lives in, the life and the work and ministry of Christ in this community, is not the perfect church. It's not like Faith Community Church has arrived at this place where we've just got it all figured out now. And so we can now, by the standards that we've come to understand, evaluate everyone else and everything else, both past, present, and future. The fact of the matter is, is that everything that we do day in and day out ought to be oriented toward careful reflection on the truth of God's Word, on the clear teaching of Scripture, on a recognition of our tendency to slide into, into moments and seasons of unfaithfulness. Certainly the fact that we're limited by our own field of vision and our own experience and our own lives. We can't know everything and see everything and understand everything in advance. So we have to have a certain humility, even when we're looking at periods and times and seasons where there was dramatic folly and failure um, that seems so obvious, like how on earth could this possibly happen? fact of the matter is, is that it did happen. It oftentimes is happening again. In fact, there's nothing new under the sun. And this should be a point of caution for us, not a point for us to take pride in because we've arrived. We've got it all figured out. So I would just encourage us once again as we move forward in our study to recognize that this is a great opportunity for us to look at these, these matters as we move through them and take, um, take them into consideration for, for where we might have pockets of weakness in our own thinking, our own theology, um, our own practice, um, and, and could be susceptible to some of the same, you know, some of the same failures uh, in the body of Christ if we're not careful. So any final thoughts or questions before we are dismissed? Again, just a quick survey. Next week we'll dive into Chapter 2 and do a quick survey of that. And then we'll start kind of moving pretty quickly through a survey of Acts and, and work our way on through to future epics uh, in, this, in this study. By the way, I just by point of confession, and um, whoever's doing the recording, you know, leave it on if you think I need this, but um, take it off if not. Um, I don't have any idea what I'm doing here, just so you know. I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in this study with you. I don't come to you as some person who's mastered the study of church history. So we're kind of walking through this together. Um, so if at any point in time you, you, know, you have a certain area where you 
um, you know, you think that you'd want to, do you think it would be helpful for us to spend some extra time or you're, you have a point of curiosity? I'm, I'm open to suggestions, in other words. I don't have this whole thing completely mapped out from now to the end of the study. Um, so just, just a, a word of humble confession and also encouragement to participate with me in this process. So anything else before we pray? I have a question. Do you, do you think that Matthias was uh, an apostle? I mean, he was he was elevated to that position, but we don't really hear of him again. And, um, yeah, I mean, he was. Seems, seems interesting. Yeah, he was commissioned. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's a. I, I think that you all you know you have prominent apostles, obviously. I mean, you have Peter and John. And for for example, in the in the book of Acts, I mean, you have Peter is prominent in the first half, and John as well as in there, and then Paul is prominent in the second half. Um, but it's similar to some of the other apostles where there's, you know, you don't, yeah. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, you don't, you don't usually think of Matthias as one of the 12 apostles. Uh, yeah. I know what's yeah, happening here. There's a, there's a few places that address that. One of them, First Corinthians uh, 15, where Paul, as an apostle, talks about uh, Christ appearing to the 12, meaning that he recognized Obviously, Judas was gone, and that there were still 12 who were recognized. So he, he at least understood Matthias to be one of the apostles. There's a few places like that, even in the book of Acts, where it refers to another group. At one point, referring to them, I think in the end of Luke, he refers to them as the 11. So he recognizes that Judas has been uh, cast out. And then later on in the book of Luke, I mean, the book of Acts, he actually goes back to referring to them as the 12. So there seems to be some recognition, even from the biblical authors, that he was accepted you know, by the early church as an apostle. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Anything else that you want Shane to answer? <laughs> Since he's here, thankfully. All right, well, I'm looking forward to this. Um, again, we're going to kind of dive into Acts chapter 2 and kind of get moving through and um, hope it's a good time for us. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed.